You're listening to Panels of Blood, part of SplatterPictures.net. Hello and welcome to Panels of Blood, the podcast where I read you horror comics from all eras. I am your horror host, Wes Deadair Nipe. First up, I'd like to thank Rick Hunter for the use of our intro and outro music. And I'd like to thank Chris Begarin for the use of his wonderful art that we use all over the place on the website and for the podcast. It has been a minute since I have recorded a new episode of Panels of Blood for you guys, but I thought in spirit of the Halloween season, it would be a good idea, and I thought of no other character to finally bring to Panels of Blood than Freddy Krueger. And that's how come we're going to be doing the 1989 comic book, Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, the This uh, book is fascinating and up until a little while ago i didn't even know it existed and the reason for that is is because first of all it's a marvel comic book and it was released in a black and white magazine style format and the art in this book is absolutely mind-bending and the story is incredible it was written by steve gerber who um comic fans would definitely recognize as the guy who um, did man thing really, I mean, he didn't create the character, but he really defined what that character is for a lot of Marvel fans. And of course, most identified as the creator of Howard the duck. And when this book was released, it, uh, had a lot of success. It had a lot of success and it outsold other Marvel books in the same format. Uh, and it was solicited for up to five issues and other uh, artists and writers had come on board to write um, different Freddy Krueger stories in the Nightmare on Elm Street universe, but uh, it got quietly canceled just after two issues. And so this only exists as two issues of a comic book. And it was funny, I got this or these, I should say, as a, a birthday gift uh, one of my best friends, he uh, was involved with a, a horror comic book auction. And so for my birthday, he brought me this huge, huge stack of horror comics, old tales from the crypt, old books uh, based off of Nosferatu, um, a psycho comic book series, a lot of really, really cool stuff. But in the pile that I just could not take my eyes off was this Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on Elm Street. I, I had never seen them before. I had, was aware that there were Nightmare on Elm Street comics. I know that uh, Brian Polito did one in 2005. Um, Brian being uh, the, the, the guy that uh, created all the chaos characters like Lady Death and uh, Purgatory and stuff. Uh, Evil Ernie. But um, I had never known that there was a book that came out in 1989. So what happened? What happened to this book? Five issues solicited, but only two released. Uh, well, it's a tale as old as time. A bunch of sanctimonious fucking scolds scared Marvel because even though that the the book was marketed towards mature readers, it even says right on the cover, illustrated horror for mature readers. Um, even though it, it, the, there was a warning uh, towards that and it was done in the magazine format. For those of you who don't know, the magazine format is basically a way that uh, comic books can kind of get around the comics code back in those days. The comics code, as we've discussed in Panels of Blood before, was this draconian set of rules that basically made comic books doomed to be kiddie stuff. Um, but if you released your comic books in a magazine format, it was technically not subjected to the comics code. That's how come books like Vampirella and Conan could get around that and show things that would be too violent or too sexy in normal circumstances. But this book got released, and despite its success, Marvel got scared. And so we really, really missed out. You, like, you guys have 
Oh, get your hands on this fucking book. I promise you, you will love it. So this is what we're going to do because I've read them. I, I fucking love them. They're so fucking cool. And Steve Gerber really did something interesting here, I feel. So in 1989, as most of you will know, A Nightmare on Elm Street had kind of happened. Um, most of the films had been released. In fact, I think the only one that hadn't been released at this point was um, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Because uh, that was in the early 90s. And, and Freddy vs. Jason. So um, those were the only ones that had come out. And so you had, you had Freddy, uh, Freddy's revenge, you had dream warriors and, uh, you had the dream master and dream child and all these other, uh, additions to the franchise. So Steve really seems to have picked and choosed different things from different films. I mean, he really, uh, uh, pulls stuff from Freddy's revenge. He pulls stuff from the original. He pulls stuff from dream warriors, uh, cause Amanda Kruger's in the book. Um, there, there is a lot of, uh, stuff going on in this book, but it also deviates a little bit, which, you know, a, a comic, um, uh, a, a comic, uh, creators only jobs to tell a good story. And if something's based off of a movie, I mean, yeah, you can definitely pay homage to it, but I think it's a good idea to to really make it your own thing. And he really did in in this story. Um, so uh, I'm definitely not gonna make you wait anymore. And, and by the way, I'm recording this intro a little uh, beforehand. Um, I was recording this. It had been a while, and uh, I didn't have my pop filter on. So if you get any uh, plosives, I've done my best to sort of curtail the worst ones. But there's some plosives here and there. So uh, just be aware aware of that and I'll get I'll get it next time for sure. But without further ado, I bring you Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Stalker written by Steve Gerber. Pencil breakdowns page 1 to 23. Rich Buckler. Pencil breakdowns page 24 to 44. Tony Dezaniga. Finishes by Alfredo Acala. Letters, Janice Chang. Cover, Joe Jusco. Establishing shot, the outside of a suburban home. A man stands in the doorway while an ambulance is parked out front. It's night, there's a full moon. In the sky, a portrait of Freddy Krueger himself looming over the scene. There's even a, a twinkle in his eye to match starlight. Caption, Springwood, just before midnight. The residence of Roger and Patty Hayes and their daughter, Allison. Roger, a man in his underwear and bathrobe standing in the doorframe, says, Yep, ambulance is here, babe. He's very drunk. Paramedics at the door. Paramedic, Mr. Hayes, you called for an ambulance? Roger. I, yeah, no, my wife did. Where's the patient, sir? Uh. One of the medics. It's a simple question, pal. Where's the damn patient? The father. I, I didn't, I swear. How the hell could this happen? A scream from off panel. Help! It's his wife, Patty. She stands in the stairwell, screaming to the paramedics. Up here! She's up here! Please, hurry! Medic. Thank you, ma'am. We'd be glad to. <laughs> Roger just chugging a bottle of Jack. Glad. <laughs> Don't think so. Paramedics hurrying up the stairs. They've brought with them a stretcher. Patty. In there. It's my daughter. Just step aside, Mrs. Hayes. Let us through. They're opening the door to Allison's bedroom. Try to stay calm. We'll do everything we possibly... Close up of one of the paramedics' face. He looks shocked. In complete horror, we see Allison lying in bed, her face frozen in fright. She is covered in blood and dozens of long, deep slashes. Her nightgown positively soaked in gore. Medic, what in the name of hell happened in here? The medics rush to her, one grabbing her wrist, the other putting his thumb to her neck. He says, checking the pulse. Weak, but there's still a pulse. Other medic. She looks like somebody worked her over with a damn scalpel. And did you notice the feet? Burned. This kid's been tortured. 
we now have an overhead shot of her Allison's bedroom. There is blood spattered on every wall, all over the floor, all over the bed, and of course, her herself covered in blood. One of the medics. Josh, help me get her on the stretcher. Mitch, you call the cops. They're not getting away with this. Establishing shot, the Springwood Police Department. Let's go over the story one more time. We have Roger and Patty sitting on two chairs in front of the desk of a police officer, likely the chief. He's standing up, both hands slammed on the table. He says, maybe it'll improve if you lace it with a little truth. Roger, but I, I didn't hurt Allison. I don't know who did. There were sounds from her room, screams, breaking glass, pounding. She was being slammed against the walls. The cop, uh-huh. By whom? Roger looks away and down. Damn it, I told you. I don't know. You think this sounds any less crazy to me? He puts his hands in his face, pleads with his wife while she tries to console him. Patty, honey, tell them, please. Patty? Patty speaks to the cop who looks incredulous, to say the least. It's, it's true, Sergeant. Her room was locked from the inside. Roger forced open the door. We found her beaten, all cut up. Oh, dear God, why didn't we listen? A uniformed officer comes into the doorway. Excuse me, Gus. Hospital just called. Kids going into surgery. Patty. Oh, no. The cop. Massive internal bleeding. Don't sound good. So he is a sergeant. He's a uh, Sergeant Gus Miller is our police officer that was interrogating them. Patty. Sergeant Miller, I beg you, let us go to her. Sergeant Miller, I think you should. I'll even drive. So it's not really clear in this scene if um, Sergeant Miller does believe them, but he definitely seems to think that it's possible that they didn't actually commit the crime themselves. Cut to an establishing shot. New York. We see a vague silhouette of the city as it's pelted by rain. A bright, gnarled shock of lightning streaks the sky. We're now at the exterior of an apartment complex, 71 West End Avenue. Still pouring rain. Two people stand in silhouette. Uh, Doug says, You sure you won't reconsider, Julianne? You know, the city's got a few advantages over your old hometown, myself among them. We see Julianne uh, closing up her umbrella, shaking out the rain. You know my mind's made up, Doug. I've taken the job for one thing. And there are other reasons I want to go back to Springwood. Doug. Okay, if you find yourself missing the man of your dreams, you know where to find him. She smiles. Uh-huh. Good night, Dougie. As she turns to go inside, she trips and falls in the lobby of her building. Man of my... Oof! What the hell? She looks over and sees a tricycle knocked over on its side after she tripped over it. She looks frustrated. Great. Perfect finale to my last big night on the town. I get mugged by a tricycle. She heads to the elevator, looking back to the trike. The manager's gonna hear about this. We hear a voice. Coming for you. Julianne doesn't seem to notice. Someone could really get hurt if she starts. Coming for you. Hmm? What? She looks confused. Mildly scared. Who said that? Is somebody? Coming for you. Three, four. Oh my god, the floor. We see that Julianne is standing on a floor that's warping, almost as if it's a waterbed. She falls and screams. Lock your door. Five, six, your crucifix. She's trying to stand. The elevator doors open. Who are you? What do you want from me? A close-up of her eye. Heavy shadows. She looks on in horror. We are the world. She sputters out. What? And pouring out of the elevator. Zombified husks of at least a dozen children, their arms outstretched, flesh dangling from their limbs, 
some missing their eyes completely, their mouths gaped open, and they say in unison, We are the children. She falls backwards, trying to scamper away from them, and they slink forward. Hold us, Julianne. Hold us tight till we crumble to dust and go nighty-night. She screams as they pile on top of her and dissolve into clouds of dust. She stammers over the pile of ash, almost unrecognizable now, although we do see the remnants of the head of one of the children. Babies, just babies. Oh, God. All of a sudden, she's no longer in that hallway. One, two. She has her hand to her face. What? Where am I now? Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. We see Julianne, now outside an idyllic suburban home. Children jumping rope, playing in the yard. Five, six, grab your crucifix. Seven, eight, gonna stay up late. Nine, ten. The front door of this beautiful suburban house creaks open, and we see the familiar silhouette of Freddy Krueger, the unmistakable fedora hat. Never sleep again. Now a close-up shot. Freddy still in heavy silhouette. He holds his gloved hand skyward, his claws wisp-like in this art. It's gorgeous and creepy. Freddy says, Hiya, Jules. Freddy Krueger bursts into flames. Wanna meet your perfect match? Whoosh! A wave of fire comes from the ignited Freddy Krueger and washes over the front yard towards Julianne and engulfs her in flames. She screams in pain as the flames lap around her flesh. Oh no! Boom! She's awake. The bed is on fire in one spot. Damn, damn, damn! Cigarettes! Where'd it go? She douses the small flame with a can of soda that was by her bed. If I keep falling asleep with these damn things lit... Nervously now, Julianne stands, lighting another cigarette. Because if a cigarette almost kills you, I'm going to have another one. I won't have to worry about Mr. Kruger. I'll flambe myself. Yeah, right. That's why my hands won't stop shaking. She looks outside to the vast New York cityscape. Maybe I ought to rethink moving back to Springwood. Establishing shot. We are now inside of a hospital. Caption. Springwood Medical Center, OR. We see Allison getting repaired by the doctors. She's under. Let's begin. Close-up shot of Allison's face. She looks peaceful. Her vitals normal. The spleen's ruptured. We'll have to remove it to stop the bleeding. Scalpel. We see a close-up of the doctor's hand about to cut into her flesh. They make an incision in her stomach. Clamp. What the hell? The wound of the doctor's cut seems to be spreading open and starting to bleed profusely. One of the doctors, the incision's opening by itself? Allison awakes, her stomach now split open. We can see her intestines. One of the doctors, something's ripping her apart. Allison's intestines start to move on their own and snake up to her face. <laughs> oh, this is it, Allison. Your moment of guts and glory. Allison now pleading, oh God, no, stop. It's, the intestines are strangling her. Strangling me. One of the doctors now hunched over as she's struggling to pull her own intestines from her throat. Oh, what's the matter, honey? Upset stomach? <laughs> the doctor removes his mask and we see it is none other than Freddy Krueger himself. She's choking, looking up in horror at his burnt face. You got away from me once, bitch, but it won't happen again. We see her writhing on the floor, Freddy Krueger backlit by the surgical lights. Oh, don't get all choked up. 
Show some intestinal fortitude! Cut back to what's really happening. The doctor is standing over her. Her lungs are filling with blood. She's suffocating. We'll have to open her up there too. Why is she spasming? Can't you keep her still? She shouldn't be able to move at all. She's under complete sedation. Muscle relaxants. I've never seen anything like this. We see Allison's face sweating and scared, yet unconscious. She murmurs, no, no. The doctors, what is it then? An allergic reaction? If so, there's, if so, the anesthesiologist is out of license. Cut back to the dream. And by the way, just to indicate um, the dream sequences, they've done a really nice thing. Normally the, the panels are actually pretty straightforward and sharp, um, but in the dream sequences, all the panels are warped at um, their wavy, incomplete lines, and a lot of them are tilted uh, just to indicate the skewed reality. So nice touch. Nice touch. Allison. No! Damn you, I'm not going to die! Allison now, using her own intestines to choke out Freddy. You want to see guts? I'll show you guts! How'd you like a nice organic dicky, you ugly bastard? Freddy. Ugh, with the loose ends trimmed. Freddy is reaching for the monitor. Allison, oh no, I've learned that trick. Freddy, <laughs> yeah, I see you have. Allison now forcing Freddy to the ground. Get this straight. You can hurt me, scare me, batter me within an inch of my life. She slams his clawed hand into the monitor and electrocutes Freddy. But I won't let you kill me. Freddy, sizzling, hits the ground. Life ain't at all it's cracked up to be, kid. I'll show you. I'll be back. You can't keep a good man down. Back in the real world. Vital signs stabilizing. Her lungs are draining. The kid's a fighter, that's for sure. In more ways than one. Spasms have stopped. Let's try to pull her through. Caption. Several hours later, the sergeant. In her dreams? Are you asking me? Patty, all I'm saying is, it's happened before. She's awakened screaming, sometimes with tiny wounds, but nothing's like the doctor. Mr. and Mrs. Hayes? Roger. Doctor, how is she? The doctor now, with his mask down, he looks a little like Vincent Price, actually. Maybe he should sound like Vincent Price. It's still touch and go, I'm afraid. We'll know more with time. She's strong, though. It was as if her body tried to die, and her spirit wouldn't allow it. That's my Vincent Price. If she maintains that strength of will, she'll recover. Roger. Can't you call off the troops now, Miller? I admit Patty and I haven't always been the best of parents, but you must know now that neither of us could hurt Alice in this way. Sergeant. Maybe. Establishing shot, an airplane flying through the sky. Caption, the following day. Caption, a letter. Dear Mr. Quinn, I read your letter with both great interest and profound sadness. It pained me deeply to revive the memory of the torments suffered by my sister in Christ Amanda Kruger. Yet, I cannot refuse your request. We see Julianne inside the airplane reading this letter. Torments, she thinks. I've read this letter 50 times, and the language still astonishes me. How many people can write about torment without it sounding the least bit melodramatic? The tone is so consistent, the heart's so real. A flashback. An old house. Big. Not just any house, though. Our Lady of Sorrows. Institution for the mentally ill. It's snowing heavily. The letter continues. As you know, both Amanda, whom I knew as Sister Mary Helena, and I were nurses at the mental hospital, then called Our Lady of Sorrow in Springwood. I recall with disturbing clarity the last conversation before that terrible Christmas in 1946. Uh, we see uh, Amanda Kruger standing outside in the snow. She uh, is not wearing a, f she is a, a nun, but she's not wearing a full habit. She is with a nun that is wearing a full habit. Uh, she is uh, wearing partial habit. Um, maybe it's for n nuns that are technically nurses. I'm not entirely sure. If anyone knows, uh, let me know. 
uh, one of the sisters. It's a pity you won't be going home for the holidays, uh, Amanda. I was looking forward to visiting my family, but if I'm needed here, it must be the will of God. No, dear. The will of the personnel department. Our Lord didn't invent the seniority system. The letter. She laughed. I cannot recall ever hearing her laugh again. Close up of Amanda Kruger. Th this is a beautiful shot. Not only is uh, the art depiction here of Amanda Kruger as like this absolutely gorgeous young woman, but there's um, snow. And uh, if you guys uh, don't remember, this is all in black and white. So the snow really pops on the night sky. She had been assigned for the holidays to a duty ordinarily performed by the older, more experienced among us. Uh, we see her looking up to a portion of the mental institution. It looks almost like the top of a church where there might be a bell tower. The letter. We called it simply the tower. We see Amanda uh, ascending a spiral staircase. At the top of its winding stairs, behind a bolted steel door, was hell on earth. The air was different up there, foul-smelling, unclean. Any sudden movement, the slightest sound, could be cause for dread. The steel door opens when we see a, a guard there. The guard. Sorry to startle you there, sister. I didn't hear you on the stairs. Amanda. It's all right, really. I just... Believe me, there's no reason to explain. Amanda, are you leaving? Yeah, some emergency in the West Wing security. Staff's at a minimum, too, till the 26th. Don't worry, I won't be long. We see the guard heading down the stairs. He looks up at Amanda, who does look nervous. Oh, and no matter what, don't go into the cage till I get back. Is that clear? The steel door is closed, and Amanda's alone, now in the office area. The letter. The warning was unnecessary, of course. Sister Mary Helena had no intention of entering the viper's den alone. She would prepare the patient's medication, force herself to ignore the endless weeping and moaning from behind the door, and wait for the guard to return, which is precisely what she did. Work and wait. Work and wait. And we see that the clock, it goes uh, hours until it was abundantly clear he had either forgotten her or would be occupied for some time to come. We see Amanda um, go towards the opposite door. It was urgent that the patients receive their medication on time. She was about to leave to find the guard, when from within the ward there came a sound unlike any she had ever heard. It was, she said, like the cry of a soul in terror of its own being. Conscience would not permit her to ignore it. Concerned for the patient's safety, she peered inside. And we see that the, this door has a latch on it, allows Amanda to uh, peek inside. And what she sees is more than a dozen mental patients in tattered clothes, with uh, some of them with open wounds, and one of them just punching furiously at the ground. One of them, puncha, puncha. Some uh, haggard woman goes, Go slow. Another guy. Kill it. Kill it. Uh, a, a mental patient, a bespectled mental patient. Pain of the world. Pain of the world. They were the worst of the criminally insane. Beyond all help. Beyond all hope. In those days, all we could do was lock them away and keep them sufficiently tranquilized to prevent their killing one another or themselves. At the moment, she was failing even at that. Perhaps she could calm him, she thought. And uh, you see Amanda reaching for a ring of, of keys. They look like old dungeon master keys, like a big old iron key ring. She reaches away. Then she thought better. Who would calm the others? But the screaming persisted, and the pounding fists, and calling one out over sense. And we see Amanda... Unlocking the door, creaking it open, she entered the ward. Sir, let me help you, please. And we see this man who's just been punching the floor, his, his hands a bloody mess, and he says, Sister? At first, the patients must have been so startled to see her, they stood silently watching. That's right, Sister Mary Helena. 
uh, the, the 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 lead ma- mental patient, Sissa Mary Helena. She continues, "I'll be caring for you over the holidays." He goes, "Yeah." Another one, baby, baby. She reaches to tend to the man. Let me see your hands. You've hurt them very badly. And he goes, nah, strong. Show you. And he forces a gross kiss on her. She wipes her mouth. Like it, sister? He asks. She says, no. Then he forces her to the ground. Scood. I done like it when you like it. Amanda. Dear God, no. The mental patient. God ain't around, sister. Just you and me. Amanda, let me go. I'll scream. She starts to scream, and he just punches her dead in the face. Shut up. Uh, the other, the bespectacled mental patient picks up the uh, picks up the ring of keys. Pain of the world. Pain of the world. He throws the keys back onto the desk in the office. There. No cause to look, not likely to find. <laughs> Pain of the world. And he slams the door shut. From the tower, she just screams no. The letter, she was not found until the 26th, three days later. It was there when they dragged her from the ward, barely alive. God forgive me. I could have throttled the guard for never questioning her absence. She had been beaten mercilessly and raped literally hundreds of times. And as her doctor later confirmed, she was pregnant. God had left her nothing but her dignity and her faith. She retained both until the end of her life. It was my faith that wavered, and does sometimes even now. Yours in Christ, Sister Dorothy. Julianne, looking somber in the plane. I get so torn up reading this. So emotionally exhausted. What was it like to have lived it? She closes her eyes, but then opens them. The ching of metallic fingers burst from her suitcase. Freddy Krueger's burnt hands. Not wearing a glove, it's almost as if his fingernails themselves have elongated into the blades. Julianne waves her arms in front of the hand. I know this isn't happening. I know who you are. The flight attendant. Dr. Quinn? I know what you are. What? She's awoken. I wish you'd tell me. I've had four years of therapy, and I still can't figure it out. The flight attendant, just relax. You've had a bad dream, that's all. Julianne, rubbing her face. Right, that's all. Just a bad dream. She holds up the letter again, and it reads, Psychiatric Evaluation of Frederick Krueger. Report to the Superior Court, Springwood County District. Letter. Subject Frederick Krueger is the son of Sister Mary Helena, born Amanda Krueger, and an unknown patient at Our Lady of Sorrows Institution for the Mentally Ill. And uh, we're outside of an orphanage, St. Dominic's Home for Orphans. He was remanded at birth to the care of a church-operated orphanage, from which, in November 1947, at the age of nine weeks, he was adopted by a real estate agent and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Paul Strunk. We see the the couple looking like a typical 1940s couple, suit, fedora, that kind of thing. According to police records, the Strunk's custody of Frederick lasted less than 24 hours. On the very night they brought the child home, their residence of 111 Maple Street was violated by burglars. There was no evidence to suggest they were after the child. It appears, however, that even in infancy, Frederick seemed uncannily to attract violence. Frederick and his newly adopted parents apparently slept soundly, until a noise from the kitchen awakened Mr. Strunk. Taking a gun for protection, he went to investigate. We see Mr. Strunk here wearing polka-dotted pajamas, coming in on these criminals in the midst of it. It's a man and a woman. Uh in the kitchen and surprise the intruders in the kitchen. Mr. Strunk fires his gun. As startled himself as they were, he fired. He wounded one of the burglars, shot, uh, shot the, the man in the chest, 
Police theorize he must have advanced on the other, a female, prompting her to seek the nearest weapon, a carving knife. We see that she has lunged at him so fast that her hat's fallen off, and she has grabbed him by the wrist, pushing his gun upwards, and it's fired, but then plunges the knife down into him, right dead center in his chest, which she summarily buried in the Strunk's chest. Even as Mr. Strunk was expiring, we see the two burglars looking at the dead man on the floor. His wife, awakened by the scuffle, entered the kitchen, saw what had become of her husband, and she screamed. This, of course, made it necessary for the thieves to silence her as well. And we see her running down the hallway trying to get out of the house, and she is shot summarily in the back, which they did. At the door of Frederick's nursery, the sound no doubt awakened the child, but rather than killing him, they somehow muffled his cries. It looks like they um, chloroformed him or something and added him to their loot. And we see them running down the street. At some later date, Frederick was sold to a couple later identified as Walter Stork Fingal and Isabel Trant, a small-time procurer and his prostitute, respectively. Precisely why they wanted the child remains unknown. Perhaps some perverse parenting impulse. Perhaps something worse. In any event, according to the subject's own account, by the age of six, he was learning their trade. We have a, a young Frederick Kruger in a baseball hat with an R on it. Maybe it's from Riverdale. And he's approaching a man in an alley. Hey, mister. Want to go out with my mom? The extent to which the subject's sexuality was warped by what he saw in those years cannot be overstated, nor the effects of the cruelties he suffered at Fringle's hands. And we see this scene in which uh, young Freddy Krueger is walking in on his adopted mother uh, having sex with a John, and he's pulled by the ear away from uh, Fringle's, and he smacks Freddy across the face. Told you not to bother the customers. Told you a million times, didn't I? He says, yes, sir. While, well, this guy pulls out a fucking straight razor. Was that? Yes. And swish, Freddy is slashed. Then see it don't happen again. Next time, I cut you up good. In fact, such punishments must have been administered routinely, if the scars over the subject's body are any indication. Again, by his own account, Frederick remained in this environment until his early teens. He freely admits to the circumstances of his departure. Indeed, he takes inordinate pride at having mastered the use of Fringle's disciplinary tool, and at having employed it to slit his custodian's throats in their sleep. Police records corroborate the time frame. And we see uh, Freddy Krueger leaving. He's got himself a sack over his uh, shoulder. He looks back in the window. And in the window, he sees his adopted parents, his second pair of adopted parents, the shitty ones, um, cut up. And his father, uh, adopted father, has rot in hell carved in his stomach. Shades of the Tate LaBianca murders. And the details of Fringles and Trant's deaths. Subject spent the next several years as an internant, surviving on the fruits of mugging and petty thefts. He claims to have slept outdoors for much of this time, regardless of weather. And it was during this period, he asserts, that he learned to control his dreams. We see uh, a young Freddy Krueger, and he's actually wearing the sweater in this uh, scene. And he's standing in a field, and a beautiful, angelic, uh, ghostly woman is sort of coming towards him. Obviously, such a claim must be viewed with skepticism. Yet, it is undoubtedly true that only in fantasy could he have experienced any sense of command over his chaotic existence. And we see that he had used his very hand to plunge into this ghostly woman's stomach. And when he pulls it free, it uh, is as if he has long fingernails himself like the Freddy Glove. It was hardly surprising that the dominant theme of the dreams he related to me was that of sexual ecstasy derived from the exercise of absolute domination, i.e. the power of life and death. We see a young Freddy Krueger standing over this mutilated woman's body. In his dreams, his hands became Fringle's instrument of torture, 
and only through the infliction of pain came pleasure. Now we see Freddy Krueger as an adult, or, you know, 20s, 30s, maybe. I guess that's an adult. Uh, and he is standing in the shadows. He's got the fedora, he's got the sweater, he's got his glove, and he is stalking a group of children. In time, Subject's ability to distinguish between fantasy and reality became drastically impaired. A close-up of a young girl. Until eventually, he eliminated the difference altogether. She's grabbed and pulled into the shadows. Establishing shot. Night. An abandoned power plant where Freddy did his crimes. The crimes of which Subject stands accused represent the fusion of his fantasies with reality. The abandoned power plant where he resided was his fortress against the world. Now we see Freddy in the boiler room carrying an unconscious little girl. The boiler room, where allegedly the murders were committed, was its dungeon. We see the young girl on a metal bed. The victims, all children, were as helpless against him as he had been against Fringle. In their pain, he found love. And we see that this little girl who was wearing a, a heart-shaped pendant, uh, Freddy has lifted the pendant off with his claw. His disposal of the body seemed more a ritual than an effort to conceal his crimes. Each was cradled gently in his arms, borne to the boiler, and thrust into the sacrificial flames, perhaps to purify their souls, or perhaps to cleanse his. We may never know which. We now see Freddy has chucked the little girl's body into the fire, and now there's a close-up of the numerous skulls of children just uh, burning away in the flames. Flame has to be really hot to burn bone to ash. You really, really got to get those temperatures up, and I don't know if a, a boiler would really do it um, in this case. Depends how hot it gets, I suppose. I mean, it is an industrial boiler, so it's possible. But it would take a bit. It takes hours and hours to burn a body to ash. The report continues. None of this should be construed, however, to mean that the subject was unable to distinguish right from wrong. Quite clearly, he understood that he was committing murder. And quite clearly, he enjoyed it. It is therefore my opinion that Frederick Krueger should be judged competent to stand trial. We're back to establishing shot of Julianne in the plane. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Please extinguish all smoking materials and fasten your seatbelts, please. We are commencing our final approach to Springwood. <laughs> 1989, ladies and gentlemen. 1989. And you are smoking in an airplane. It's crazy. It does not seem that long ago. Julianne now walking the streets of Springwood. Caption. Some time later. You'll be staying with us how long, Mrs. Quinn? About a week till my furniture arrives from New York. Okie dokie. Room 102. And enjoy your stay with the Springwood Inn. We see her putting down her bag in her hotel room. Enjoy your stay. The motels in this town should put amphetamines on the pillows instead of mints. No. Now we see Julianne taking a shower. Now, it's not pervy, it's sexy. There's a nice uh, silhouette of a, of a beautiful naked lady, and that is horror, gang. That is horror. She goes on. No. That's fatigue talking. I can't let myself fall into that trap. I came back here to put a stop to the nightmares. And to you, if I can. She's uh, looking at uh, old, old uh, newspapers. The newspapers actually is like Marvel News. This is released by Marvel Comics, so I wonder if that's what it is. It's like all these newspapers written by Stanley. Springwood Slasher goes free. Excelsior. <laughs> I'm sorry. We see Julianne sleeping. Uh, we're about to go sleep. Though obviously, that's been tried before. Then again, who knows? Maybe I'm the one you shouldn't have picked on. She drifts off. Nine, ten, never sleep again. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. She wakes up. What? Where? She sees the three little girls playing jump rope. 
three, four, better lock your door. Oh my god. A voice from off panel. Julianne? She sits up. A woman sitting across from her. Uh, the, the, the woman in this case, by the way, is Allison. We, uh, Julianne now is seeing an image of Allison, uh, who is in her hospital gown, uh, sitting next to Julianne's bed. How did you... What do you want? Allison puts a hand to her chin. World Peace, to win the lottery, the new Guns N' Roses album. For him to leave me alone, one lousy night, so I can sleep without... She looks to her stomach. A bright light emanates from it, and she screams as Freddy's gloved hand erupts from her gut, spewing blood everywhere. Freddy now pulling himself out of this woman's body, not unlike um, from Freddy's Revenge. It's kind of like that scene. Freddy. Sorry to extrude. Just as the conversation was starting to sparkle. <laughs> but I never could stomach a whiner. Julianne puts her hands to her head, closes her eyes tight. This is my dream, not yours. I control it, not you. Freddy rearing his glove. Don't go theoretical on me, Jules. I hate that. Keep it primal. You scream. I'll jump your bones and we'll go for a ride. We see him jumping on her body, pulls into the bed, and it erupts into blood, not unlike the Johnny Depp scene from the first film. We now have an overhead shot of the bed. It has become a deep, dark pit. Figure it this way, Jules. You hit bottom. Break every bone in your body. If I let you wake up, <laughs> you'll still have to go to work in the morning. Maybe death. We see Julianne almost bathed in stardust. She has this realization as she is sinking into the inky black void. No. My dream. Not yours. Beautiful, feathery, angelic wings burst from her back. And instead of the blackness, there is a brilliant sky full of stars. I'm not falling, Kruger. I'm flying, rising gently on silver wings. She comes up through the bed, almost in like a fetal position while her wings are spread. Back to my bed, back to my room, back to where I'm safe. She lands on the ground now, Freddy's voice from the darkness. Nice try, Jules. Boom. Her wings are gone, and they're in the boiler room. Freddy menaces her with his glove. But I just revised your flight plan. I thought we should spend a little time together in my room. I want to get as close to you as you've gotten to me. So far, it's been a pretty one-sided relationship. He scrapes his claws along a pipe. But we'll remedy that. I won't be so distant from you now. We'll get to know one another inside and out. The phone rings. As she cries out, no, and she awakes in bed. The phone, it's just the phone. She answers it. Hello? Yes. Dr. Marlin, yes, this is Julianne. No, not really, out of breath, just... No, no. I'm glad you woke me. Yes, sir. I'll be at the staff meeting, nine sharp. Establishing shot, the morning, at the institution. Caption. The next morning... Dr. Quinn's work has included a cross-cultural study on the psychology of dreams. And we see a, a room of, uh, well, old men in suits. One of the uh, doctors. With techniques derived from the beliefs of the Yaqui Indians and the Australian Aborigines, and so on. I expect her to become a unique and valuable asset to this clinic. Another one of the gentlemen. It's about time, Marlon. We've needed a witch doctor on staff here. Julianne, feel free to be amused, Dr. Watley. I don't ask for your credulity, just a modicum of courtesy. <laughs> all right, hon. We're all on the same team. I'm afraid I'm not much of a team player, doctor, or a diplomat either. My expertise is research and individual therapy. Those will be my concerns. 
now we know Julianne's uh, credentials. And also that this guy does not take her seriously. Not clinic politics. Some of my techniques are unorthodox, Dr. Marlin knew that when he hired me. Your opinion of me is your own business. However, my work will not be subject of group critique or to ridicule. Later, I'm sorry if I came down so hard on Watley, this uh, new handsome young doctor. He deserved it. Good doctor, but occasionally a pompous ass. I'm going to assume from that speech that you'd like to get to work immediately, because I think I have a patient who needs you. You'll see her at Springwood Medical. She can't be moved yet. Severe delusions, depressive behavior, indications of possible parental abuse. The police want an examination right away. Good luck, doctor. He hands her a file. Haynes. Allison. Later, at Springwood Medical. A nurse standing over Allison. No, really, it's an antibiotic, Allison. Allison. And what else? Nothing. Allison springs up from bed and slaps the medication out of the nurse's hands. You're lying! You're trying to make me go to sleep! You're all trying to kill me! Julianne coming through the door. I don't want your damn tranks! Get out! Get out! Uh, uh, Julianne. I take it I've arrived at a bad... Oh my god. The nurse. It's okay. This is her typical mood. Allison. This is crazy. You can't... Here's looking at you too, kid. This scene is a little confusing, but basically, Julianne recognizes Allison from her dream, and I think Allison recognizes Julianne from perhaps another dream, like perhaps this was a shared dream between the two women. I think that's what is going on in this scene. Allison, I'm not trying to make trouble. Just stay awake. You know, tell her. The nurse. Don't be silly, Allison. How would this lady... Julianne. No, it's true, nurse. I'm Dr. Quinn from Weston Hills. Allison's uh, sleep disorder doesn't respond well to sedation. What was in the syringe? The nurse. Tetracycline. That's all. Julianne. Bring another. She was telling you the truth, Allison. It's not a tranquilizer. Do you believe me? Allison. You're a shrink, aren't you? I don't need a shrink. I need a bodyguard. Julianne, I know. To protect you from the man in your dreams. Allison, looking shocked, she brings her hands up to her face. Oh, it was you. You do know. Nobody's ever believed me. You have to tell me. Julianne, his name is Fred Krueger. And if you promise to stay calm, I'll tell you all I know about him. But you've got to relax. Get your strength back. You're going to need it. Caption, sometime later. Allison, I still don't get it. What is he? Why is he after you? Or me? Julianne, my parents were among the mob that burned him alive after he was freed. We moved away from Springwood a few years later. I grew up in New York, spent most of my life there. I never even knew about the Kruger or the massacre of my childhood friends till he invaded my dreams. Allison, so he's after you for revenge. What does he want with me? And what is he? He's become something our culture doesn't have a word for. A demon of the dream world. Evil in its most rarefied state. Allison. Oh, swell. As to why he wants you? That's a mystery. Except, of course, that he seems to feed on the terror and loves a good fight. And you've provided him with both. So where does all this get us? I mean... Sooner or later, I'm bound to fall asleep, right? And then, I do the maximum checkout. There's no way to beat that son of a bitch, is there? A close-up of Julianne's face. There may be, by dreaming true. That evening, establishing shot, just outside the hospital. It's a technique for maintaining complete continuity of thought from the waking state into dreaming. You're shining me? I'm what? Kidding. That's impossible. No, Allison, it isn't. We visualize a place and hold the picture in our minds until the instant we fall asleep. At precisely that moment, we step into the picture. Allison, sounds pretty flaky to me. Okay, that's... As long as you're willing to try it, here's where we'll go. It'll be territory we control. We see that um, Julianne has... Uh, quite masterfully sketched a desert mountain range. It almost looks like the 
the mountain from Close Encounters of a Third Kind, just a, a, a big peak with a very flat top. Um, and she shows the picture to Allison, Julianne, with nowhere for Kruger to hide if he decides to join us. Now, lie back, look at the picture, and stay conscious of my touch. The shared sensation is what will keep us together. We see Julianne sort of drape herself uh, over uh, Allison's bed in, in a seated position. I'm fading fast, so tired, Allison says. Do you feel my touch? Mm-hmm. See the picture? Mm. Let yourself relax. Calm, but not drifting. Directed. Focused. Come with me into the dream. And we see the two women in this vast desert landscape together. They, they both stand. We did it. We're here. Yes. Now you've got to take control of the dream, huh? Dream yourself healed. You're not bound by physical reality. You don't have to wear that hospital gown. Search your mind. Find an image of power and wear that. Allison now bathed in a white light. Oh yeah, something way cool. <laughs> now we see Allison standing there in a wrestler pose, and she's got... um spandex with uh, tiger stripes on it and a leather jacket and a studded belt and her hair is up in a ponytail um, and she says I saw it on a lady wrestler once what do you think poof they're in the middle of a wrestling ring and from off panel ladies and gentlemen tonight's main event this match is scheduled for one fall yours <laughs> with no time limit and no holds barred. Allison, Kruger, how? And we see Freddy Krueger standing in the middle of the ring, and he's got an old and he's got an old timey microphone in his hand. Um, you're even stupider than you look, bitch. Don't you know wrestling is fixed? The ground splits between the two women. Allison, the ground's opening up. What's that yuck inside? Freddy Krueger, brains, Allison. I figured you could use some. Hot, steaming brains for a couple of hot, sexy chicks. And we pull back, and this entire mountain is now Freddy Krueger's head, and the two women are flailing on uncertain ground of Freddy Krueger's exposed brains on the top of the mountain. So they're basically, imagine it like a giant bowl, and Freddy's head's the bowl, and these two women are inside of his head. Freddy says, I didn't want you to die without seeing my intellectual side. <laughs> I can be a very deep thinker. Take a moment and let that sink in. The two women sink below his gooey brains as he laughs. <laughs> to be continued next issue. And that's going to do it. I'd like to point out that as, as violent as some images are in this book um, and uh, so much so that special interest groups had to make sure that uh, naughty images like this are not seen by sensitive viewers um, no one actually dies in this first issue of Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on Elm Street counterintuitive to uh, a book about a child killer who uh, stalks and kills people in their dreams no one actually is dead yet very fascinating stuff. Well, I mean, aside from deaths and flashbacks. Okay, you know what? Actually, there is a couple of deaths now. <laughs> now that I think about it. But no main characters have died. At any rate, I am your horror host, Wes Deadair Nipe. Now and forever, even beyond the grave. And I'll be seeing you next week on Halloween night. For panels of blood.